0: I'd like to uh, continue from the last two sessions, uh, but focus a little more today. And the last two sessions, we've looked at the theme of uh, first, uh, two weeks ago, a service as a path of practice. That is, taking our work with others, work to help others, which could be understood quite broadly And how do we see that as a path of practice? What what helps make it a um, sequence of learning or development in which we uh, cultivate certain qualities, we work with certain difficulties, and we, um, as it were, develop uh, progress in a sense um, in terms of developing core spiritual qualities. And last time... I broadened the theme, particularly to think of it uh, also not just service but work more generally. And we looked at um, we looked at uh, the sense of uh, vocation of knowing what one's calling is, trying being in touch with that as well as working with certain difficulties. And we we had uh, two times ago we had talked together about what some of the characteristic difficulties are. Of uh, a path of service, or taking our work as practice, we talked about um, some of the more obvious ones about burnout, or feeling overwhelmed, or um, feeling confused about what to do. Sometimes confusion about what's my what's my next step, or how do I work with this challenge. Uh, we talked about issues of uh, boundaries. We Sometimes it's possible in work to lose boundaries in in different ways. We talked about attachment to outcome and self-judgment, sense of inadequacy, as well as more outer challenges like people in power over you, telling you what to do, or different social forces which make it harder to accomplish one's intentions. And for today, I wanted to keep with that larger theme, but but focus a little bit more on a theme that we really opened up in a sense last time, which is which is uh, talking about the centrality of uh, our intentions, our uh, our deeper purposes, our um, aspirations, as well as how we work with intention moment to moment. I think this is a very central aspect of having our sense of work, of service, come alive as practice. In fact, it may be be right at the center of things. I I believe that it is. So I want to talk about the centrality of intention in our uh, practice, both, as it were, our inner practice and our uh, practice of service and our work in the world. And I want to uh, do so really, I think, in three main uh, themes. According to three main themes, I want to talk about why intention is so important first. And then I want to talk about two core aspects of intention, which are the same two that I brought up at the beginning of the sitting. One of them could be called connecting with deeper intentions, And I, I ca- tend to call that aspiration. Uh, intention as aspiration, connecting with one's deeper intentions for one's life, for what one is, what we are doing in this life, what I am doing in this life. And the second uh, aspect of intention is more um, I'll, just, I'll talk about it as intention in specific activities. This is the more the moment-to-moment intention. And so, first, the importance of intentions. Then, some more about aspiration. And then, thirdly, about um, really the work with intentions in our activities, our daily life activities. And I want, with the latter two, to give suggest a number of practices that we can that we can work with in those areas. And I had I had not. Uh, read a poem from last time that I wanted to read which was about this connection of inner and outer and I thought I would read that first it was um, because it's it, I had it with me but I didn't read it. It was from it was from a um, a teen retreat that I did some years ago with uh, also with, with Heather Sunberg. many of you know Heather and uh, it was up at a and we had uh, We, at one point, gave them a chance to go out into the forest for two hours and be creative and uh, encourage them to write poems or stories. And our theme was, how do you connect the inner with your outer activity? And this was one poem. Well, actually, I'll read two of them. This was by Nick Riggle, the real name. And he said, this was his poem about how to connect the inside with the outside. The outside seems conditioned by the inside, and back and forth. What an obnoxious pattern. (laughs) (laughs) And this is from, um, this is a poem also about that process, um, particularly starting with mindfulness. This is from Anika Baker-Lawrence. It goes like this mindfulness, mindless, full mindness, find mo- find molness. nin nullness, mindfulness. <laughs> <laughs> so in that spirit, why why are intentions uh, important? Why why is working with intention so important? And Often I think about what we're doing in our practice as actually being very simple. And all of these, all of the books in the bookstore and all these meetings and retreats and so forth, they're really there to strengthen our capacity in a very, very simple process. And sometimes I think that moment to moment, all we're doing is trying to be mindful and aware of what's happening, number one, three steps. On the basis of being aware of what's happening, we summon our best intention based on wisdom and compassion for how to respond, kind of moment to moment, some of it's spontaneous. So, being aware of what's happening, developing an intention to respond, and then thirdly, responding through some kind of action or could just be to continue to be aware some response. So awareness, intention, response. Very simple model. We could really consider that that's what our life is about moment to moment to moment. And what we're doing is strengthening the capacity to actually do all three of those. To be aware, to have a clear intention and to be able to respond coming out of that awareness and clear intention. That sounds obvious, but why is, I believe that that actually is revolutionary. Why so? It's because if you reflect, we can see that often none of those three steps are present. <laughs> <laughs> that so much of life is led without much awareness, without clarity of intention, and without true responsiveness, so we're just a little bit just acting or reacting or on automatic pilot. And that's sadly a large part of life, both personal life and collective life. It's often reactive, not responsive. We often don't know what's happening internally, and we don't have clear intentions. And it's not hard to see that without those three dimensions of awareness, clarity of intention, and responsiveness, there's a lot of suffering. I think we can be on automatic pilot and be doing a lot of good things as well. So I don't think being on automatic necessarily means that we're always suffering. We can be on automatic pilot with a lot of pleasant experiences. You know, but it's really um, that finding that we're often not aware and don't have clarity, clarity of intentions that can help us see that to develop those capacities is really crucial. And this is true personally. I think it's also true in terms of our relational life, our families, our groups, our organizations, and our, in our larger society. I was thinking of uh, two friends who are both organizational consultants. I remember one of them, he said, the greatest source of problems in an organization is lack of clarity around decision making, which in a way is connected with lack of clarity of intention. And you might think of organizations you're with or meetings you go to, and you can ask, how much clarity of intention is there? You know, another friend, who an organizational consultant, he, uh, I remember he once gave a talk, it was very provocative, he said, why, if we're so smart, are we so dumb in groups and organizations, as we often are? Not always, of course, but often are. And part of his answer, I remember he gave a few reasons, and I remember two of his reasons. One of them is, of course, when we're in groups and organization, we bring our stuff, and everyone brings his or her stuff. To the organization, so it's all full of stuff. And uh, but also, he said, we generally don't have clarity of intention in the in organizations. We don't. And sometimes, if we have clarity of intention about, you know, maybe we want to make money or we want to get this goal accomplished, we don't have clarity of intentions about how we treat each other, for example, about the process or even about how we conduct meetings. How many of you have gone, gone to meetings where you had the thought, what is going on? <laughs> <laughs> Has anyone experienced that? Raise your hand. Know, or is there clarity of intention? And Of course sometimes there is, but a lot of times there's not. So it can be actually this very crucial area. You know, and I even think of our larger life in society on that model. A lot of what happens politically or socially I think is way more on the model of reactivity. You know, ideally, democracy is about having awareness of what's happening, but if you don't have a good media and you don't have good information, there's not going to be awareness. And if you don't have groups of people to talk about things together, there's not going to be clarity of intention. You know, so I think that you could even use this model and to see larger patterns of I, for, for me, the certain deterioration of information and even democratic process you know, can fit into that model. Because I like to see the way that what we're working with in terms of meditation isn't just about the individual, but it's also about our relational and collective lives. So when, when we do this, it has an impact in those areas. And what we do here could be, I believe, a model on these larger larger levels. So, in the Buddhist tradition, in the teachings of the Buddha, intention is very central. In fact, it's linked with the concept of karma, as some of you know. Karma, in, in generally, is much less about some kind of um, deterministic pattern, you know, like because I, I uh, killed an ant in the morning. I, I got stung by a bee in the evening. Or I remember I once had a friend visiting. And um, she, after she was in the bathroom, the toilet got stuck. And she said, that's my karma. <laughs> we didn't explore further what that meant. <laughs> But we sometimes think about karma in that deterministic sense, and that's not actually the way the Buddha mostly thought about it. He thought about it in terms of intention, more in the sense that when we cultivate a certain intention, we are, uh, as it were, strengthening that tendency, strengthening that uh, predisposition, or that, that um, we could call it even habit. And so he, let's see, he, he said about... Um, Let's see. He, this was his main teaching on karma. He said, "It is intention that I call karma, or kama in the, in the language of that he that was recorded, Pali, But I'll, I'll use karma. It is intention that I call karma. For having willed, one performs an action through body, speech, and mind. And so, the sense of karma is again that it's basically whatever I." tend to do a lot, I'll tend to do that in the future a lot. It's pretty simple. This pretty much comes down to that. It's basically saying, whatever I'm intending, I'm strengthening that particular intention. So if I'm practicing greed, I'm tending to strengthen greed. If I'm doing a lot of greedy things, if I'm doing activities which are more generous, or if I'm coming out of a loving heart, I will tend to be strengthening that. It's really to say, whatever is going on with my intention will tend will be given some strength by the fact of actually doing it. What that also suggests actually is that, and this is I think what the Buddha was teaching, is that in the moment of intention is where we actually find freedom. This is, and so this is quite big, that it's in the moment I, uh, I have awareness And I can feel certain tendencies occurring, and what do I do? Can I have recourse to clarity of intention and act out of my best intention? If I can do that, I can have freedom, even from a lot of strong tendencies. And this is a big part of our practice, right? We can feel certain tendencies. Maybe you've had a difficult interaction with someone. And you can feel, let's say, a lot of blaming and judging thoughts going on. And you can ask yourself, what do I want to do? Do I want to go along with those, which may come from the past and come from past tendencies? Or do I want to choose to um, do what comes more out of my wisdom and compassion? A lot of the times, just asking the question, facilitates the process because what's hardest is that a lot of those tendencies come strongly and we're not aware. And so this process of making there be room for mindfulness and awareness and even the possibility of choice, the possibility of setting an intention, is where freedom comes in. And what's powerful for me and has often moved me quite a lot is being able to see others, or sometimes feel myself, who despite a lifetime of difficulties or suffering, and a lot of tendencies maybe to um, give up or be bitter, they choose a positive intention. You know, I know from a young age, whenever I would see films of the Civil Rights Movement, I was particularly moved by especially older African-American men and women who had had, surely, a lifetime, uh, this was like from the 1960s, a lifetime of oppression. And yet there was a certain dignity, standing up straight, and a certain quality of saying, no matter what's happening, I am affirming dignity, I am affirming I will not be bitter and lash out, and I will affirm, basically, love. In the face of pain and oppression, you know, for me that's been incredibly moving. It's very remarkable quality of the human spirit, but it really is about being in touch with that deeper intention and being able to act. You know, where I think of friends who've had, you know, I was thinking of one friend who's really had a very difficult childhood that really has influenced her adulthood to the point where. Um, she hasn't been able to do what she's wanted to do so easily in terms of career and work and so forth and she says that there are a lot of voices which basically say give up you know or you're doomed because of the past and she says I listen to those voices and as much as I can I don't follow them and I affirm something else to me that's that moment of freedom you know that no matter what the past has been, I have the moment of of choice, if I'm aware. So it's very, very powerful. It really is where freedom comes in in this practice. And so we can work with intention in a few ways and I really am naming two broad ways to work with intention today in our meditation practice and in our life in the world, our service, our our work. Um, And the first is, uh, I I use the word aspiration, and the second talking about intention and specific activities. We could talk about this as um, being in touch with one's deeper intentions. And the second is more, uh, it's a way of asking in terms of very specific activities, what should be my intention? How should I, how should I act? You know, and all of this presumes that we can be mindful and aware, um, because it's the mindfulness and awareness which lets us know this intention is coming through, or this tendency is coming through. What do I want to do? So we need the mind, that's why we practice here. We practice to cultivate mindfulness, the ability to notice what's happening in the moment. So Um, First, aspiration. Um, And it's this quality of being able to connect really with my deeper purpose or my vocation or calling. Last time I talked about how the the very language that we have in English and in other languages for something like vocation, or the sense of what's my, what's my deep way of expressing my life. My, my um, could be my sense of my true work, or my true way of being in the world. And th- that can change at times over life, but in English, the word vocation comes from the Latin for voice. And it's related to hearing the voice, hearing a kind of inner voice that tells one what to do. You know, similar, similarly, we talk sometimes about our sense of our deeper purpose in life as a calling, as something that we hear, and this goes back to religious notions that go back to the uh, Jewish, early Jewish and Christian traditions, where, where that sense of listening to the voice of God in, in those traditions was taken to be the key to knowing what to do in one's life. And so how do we, how do we get in touch with this deeper intention? You know, there are a lot of different ways to do it, but it's also clear that there are a lot of ways that, that it's hard to get in touch with intentions. I was remembering, um, I taught uh, college for um, about seven years before I came to California. And I remember, I remember being with, um, students at a four-year college as, uh, seniors, and they still were somewhat in touch with what they wanted to do. And I would ask them, how many of you would do what you most deeply want to do if you would get a moderate salary? If you would get a salary that, more or less, kind of like, I don't know, lower middle class or something like that, or at least enough to live on, not to struggle, but not a lot of money. And about 80 or 90 percent of the people in that room raised their hand. About 10 to 20 percent were clearly interested in making a lot of money. And they were honest about it at least. Maybe, maybe it was more. <laughs> you never know. But, and then I asked the question, how many of you think that you'll be able to find a job where you can do what you most deeply want to do? about 10% raise their hand. And so what happens if that is the case? They're somewhat in touch with their deeper intentions, but what happens if they have to find work where it's very hard to access those deeper intentions? Over time, the deeper intentions get covered over, they get covered over, and they forget them. And then how do we remember our deeper intentions? It's called midlife crisis, <laughs> right? Seriously, you know, it's like we are, or there's some crisis or, or something shakes us, and we say, "What am I? What have I been doing for the last 10 years? What have I been doing for the last 20 years?" Because we, you know, so this points to the way that we don't always have a society that makes it so easy to uh, be supported for certain things. It's most obvious with people who are artists or maybe people really interested in meditation. If you're really interested in meditation and want to meditate all the time, where's your, you know, is there a um, job offering for that? (laughs) Maybe maybe there will be in a while. (laughs) You know, I think uh, actually there is some support for people doing that, but it's not so easy. And so... So we can see what gets in the way of knowing deeper intention can be just the way life is organized, socially. And we can get distracted, right? Even if we're pretty much in touch with our intention at times, we can get distracted, busy, you know, overworked. All of these things uh, can get in the way of really being in touch with deeper intentions. One way that we do get in touch with deeper intentions is by being quiet and listening. And sometimes we need to do a retreat or need to go. uh, Sometimes we we just need to go away from the usual set of habits, right? So even a vacation, we can go on a vacation and something important can come to consciousness about, about our next step or what I should do. Or for me, retreats have always functioned like that, as a way to get in touch with my deeper intention, especially when I get busy, That just to have that quality of silence and listening. I think our presumption when we, do have, when we offer retreats is that when we have relatively little input, the, all the stimulation of the past period of time will eventually settle down and we'll be able to listen more deeply to what's most deeply there. And we'll be in touch with things. And that's one way of coming in touch with that deeper intention. I think uh, uh, dreams and working with the unconscious, another wonderful way. Sometimes our deeper motivations and intentions come through dreams. And we have to be attentive to them. And of course, if we get too busy and have to wake up and early with the alarm in order to get to a morning <coughs> Dharma talk, <laughs> or something like that, We, um, we, I remember there was, I I studied dreams a lot for a long time, and I remember there was someone who wrote about the way that in contemporary society with the um, alarm clocks and this instant need to shift from sleeping consciousness to waking consciousness, that he talked about that as dream thieving, Uh, as, and, uh, that sometimes we need that transition time between the different states to really be able to be attentive to to dreams. But to be with dreams or to be awakened by art or music can be one way to really touch that sense of vocation. In the Tibetan tradition, the deeper sense of purpose is um, awakened by a sets of reflections that one typically does at the beginning of of one's life of practice and one's invited to reflect on the preciousness of a human life. The fact that with all these beings on the earth, in Tibetan tradition they say it's very rare to be born as a human being. And it's only as a human being that one has the capacity for awakening. Other species, they say, don't have that same capacity. And so it's to appreciate the rarity of being a human being and being alive. And uh, not only that, but to have to be, let's say, in a location where there's teaching of the possibility of waking up or transforming oneself, that that's also not always there, not so common. 50 years ago, who had access to meditation in North America? Not too many people. Maybe in some traditions, you know, could go to the Trappist Monastery in Kentucky, where I used to go, and that was around. You could get some instruction there. But generally, nothing like, nothing like what we have. So we can reflect on the, the um, rarity of our opportunity. And we can also reflect another main Reflection is on impermanence and death. You know, that we don't, we know that we each will die, we don't know when. You know, and we can have sometimes a sense of urgency can come out of that, not to just take for granted, oh, I'll get around to doing what I really want later. That can be there, can't it? We can take for granted, I'll just keep on going. You know, uh, I had a somewhat of a shocking experience a few days ago. I was in Redwood City. I was um, um, helping with an evening to honor a woman named Beth Goldring, who was who works in Cambodia with people with AIDS, does some quite beautiful work. A staff of seven, small project, and we were honoring her, and um, uh, and, I, and I gave a talk r- related to um, related to the larger context of that work, and. Um, At the end of the evening, we found out that someone whom we both knew, who was in that community around Redwood City, was dying. And she had been at several retreats that I had given, and I knew she was having some, it seemed like moderate health issues, but I had remembered receiving a birthday invitation just a few months ago, you know, with kind of normal, Sentiment. Everything, you know, everything's going well. Here she was, I found out she was dying. Her, she had had some kind of situation led to organ failure. And we went to visit her uh, Sunday night, and just to be, just to be present with her. And, you know, it's, it's a reminder. You know, we tend to think this won't happen. And in India it's sometimes said, it's universally believed that, this, that death only happens to other people. Um, and so that can be something that awakens us to our, our, our sense of purpose. It's taken, it's taken in Tibetan traditions that that can do that. And so Buddhist monks and nuns sometimes go meditate in uh, near cemeteries or uh, spend time with corpses or with, with, with the dying. To remind themselves of transiency, so there can be these different ways to get in touch with intention, to to um, work with it. I find it very helpful just to ask myself, "What is my deeper intention?" Um, even if it feels rote sometimes, just to remind myself. So, I personally have a practice, as some of you know, where several times a day I give this very short vow, and I just say it to myself, quietly, internally, try to do it before breakfast, morning, and afternoon and evening, and where I state my deeper intention to myself. It's also done in many traditions, it's done before one would meditate, you would say something like this. And so just something very simple, like trying to tune in to one's deeper intention as best one can, at the beginning of meditation, or at the beginning of an activity. I think we do this, you know, we do this when we do grace at meals. It's the same idea. You know, it's to remember the larger context of things. Very, very crucial. How do you do that in work and service? You know, maybe there could be some way of doing it individually, like I've described, just getting in touch with that. You know, or it could be, I remember, I'll give one more example. Um, a close friend and I, I think about seven or eight years ago, we, decided to do this together. And um, we, we developed our vows. That we it's almost, almost like a marriage vow, which is another way of doing it, right? It's another statement of deep intentions. But we developed vows that we took in each other's presence. And for some reason, that had tremendous power, that those vows stayed with me. I put them on my wall, uh, would sometimes think about them before the telephone rang. <laughs> you know, and so forth, but they had, it was something got empowered by doing it with another, and, and that happens sometimes. We can do vow. we should probably do that more here. It's done in other traditions, where one would take a bodhisattva vow, and it gives a way of honoring that deeper intention. And then, the last area I want to talk about is this area of um, how do we work with intention, just very moment to moment. Another way of saying it is how, how do we translate that deeper intention into moment to moment activity? It's really what is at the crux of things, right? How do, I, how, do I have my, how do I have access to my deeper intention, which sometimes takes those periods of listening, sometimes may take, you know, taking time off for a, a week, a month, or something. And if I have some attunement with my deeper intention, how do I then make it real in the flow of daily life? And one of the ways is just trying to ask, what's my intention for this specific activity? And if I've also been trying to tune into my deeper intention, the two can go together. So for a specific activity, I'm not necessarily, you know, I may have a meeting and I'm not necessarily I may want to tune into my deeper intention and say my deeper intention is to awaken and help others or something that's personally what, what uh, how I sometimes phrase my own intention and I may try to remember that at a meeting but it, but I may it may from a practical point of view it may be just to ask myself what is my intention for this two-hour meeting and it may be I want to listen well something could be you know, so it's very ordinary in that sense I want to listen well or I want to try to be mindful I want to stay aware of my body and so what the practice could be is simply asking yourself, what's my intention for this activity? I'm having a difficult discussion with a friend. Let me tune in before the activity and ask, what's my core intention? And then try to somehow stay, uh, stay connected with that. Somehow try to, um, try to work with that. We can also try to be aware of the flow of intentions as they're occurring in our experience because in some sense intentions keep on happening whether they're conscious or not you know and we can almost in the sense we can almost look at what's my intention in this uh, meeting if I wasn't so clear you know am I intending to control or am I intending to get back at someone and so we can also try to just notice those fleeting mind thoughts which also can express intention so there's maybe even this should come before the last one is that we just want to tune in what's what's my actual intention right now it's something you can do It's something we do when we do retreats We tr- we ask people to try to be aware of moment-to-moment intentions even as I might pick up this striker and I can notice that for me to strike this bell, there has to be an intention to do so. It's not just happening by itself. In other words, there has to be some connection between mind and body. And so sometimes in retreats, and you can do this, we try to tune into the moment of intention. And so I could tune into the moment of intention. Let me just notice the intention to pick up the striker. And so I sit here quiet and go, and just listen. There's a little impulse that occurs you can kind of tune into that and then there's a. I notice I just wait I wait for the intention to come before that bell rang I there was an intention so we can tune in and notice intentions on that very moment-to-moment level And when we do that more we start to notice uh, it's really that habitual energy what is my intention what am I doing here so those are they're really two practices. One just trying to tune into intentions moment to moment and notice them. And the second is to set specific intentions for activities. And I think uh, when we work with uh, all three of these aspects of intentions, the reflections on the importance of intentions, first of all, the um, ability to touch more and stay connected with deeper intentions. Uh, secondly, and then thirdly, finding a way to uh, work consciously with intentions moment to moment. I think we, we come to strengthen this very central quality, this very central resource for translating our uh, activity uh, or our, translating what we most want into our, into the flow of our work and uh, service. And, I think I'll close just by remembering um, some reflections by the Dalai Lama, and he he uh, he was asked. He, the people said to him once. I think this occurred. I think this occurred about seven or eight years ago when he came to Spirit Rock. And he was asked. Um, people call you all sorts of names, especially uh, Chinese governments. Um, you know, you, you've been called a wolf in sheep's clothing. <laughs> you know, and you've been called a counter-revolutionary and all sorts of things. And he's asked, how do you deal with all the criticism? Or even some of the younger Tibetans think, oh, this nonviolence, it's not getting anywhere. We have to work, we have to work differently. What do you do with these criticisms? And he said, I try to tune in to what my deeper intention is. And if my deeper intention is good, he says, of course I listen to feedback. But if my deeper intention is good, I don't worry. And then he was also asked, do you ever get afraid? Is there fear? And he says, sometimes there's fear. How do you deal with fear? He says, when there's fear or something uh, upsets me a little, I tune in to my deeper intention. And if my deeper intention is good, I don't worry. So I'll leave us with that and invite us to sit for just 30 seconds or a minute. Time according to all three clocks. <laughs> so, so please, if there are any reflections or questions um, related to these themes or anything that's that's come up, please. Yeah. It seems like there are a lot of things that could be deeper intentions. Yeah. There's so much. Here. Yeah. Um. How how do you select? How do you know what is right for yourself. for yourself? Yeah. So the question was: there could be all sorts of deeper intentions. How do I know what is right for myself? It's a great question, and maybe I'll I'll say something, and maybe others would have some sense of that as well. Um. Um. Do you remember that what I read last time? Were you here last time, from from Howard Thurman, I think it was, who who said um, a young man asked him that question near the end of Howard Thurman's life in the early '70s. And Howard Thurman is a great um, African American theologian and mystic activist. And he was asked that question by a young man. He said, "I'm kind of confused," and he said. Um, Interesting, as an activist, remember, he said, don't ask what the world needs, but ask what makes you come alive, because what the world needs are people who have come alive. Mm. So I think there is a kind of inner voice that we hear. Um, There is, and it can take some listening, and I think there can be different voices at different times in our lives. It may not just be one thing. And a lot of times, it's it's really about listening. I think it's something we cultivate in our meditation, It's just to listen. We can do this in very ordinary ways. It's the ability to listen to what's somehow more genuine in ourselves, and it could be it could be deep about vocation, but it could be very simple. I think we cultivate this ability when we say, when we simply ask the question, um, "Should I have seconds?" To to give a charged example, <laughs> um, which um, I love doing that uh, I, I do that best on retreats to be honest, <laughs> but I but I, I do you can do that you can do the, uh, so but it's to really it's really to see what's the genuine my genuine voice at this moment that can sometimes override more conditioned reactions so I, I think it's about this deep listening and knowing. And it, it can take uh, sometimes really um, a retreat or, or periods of sustained listening. And there's no right answer. I mean, the, the, the um, I think, the, as it were, the inclination of like um, the Tibetan Buddhists or maybe the Buddha would be, be to say, see touch deeply to feel your longing for awakening or for love, you know, but it could be expressed different ways. But it could be, I think I like to think of it as just, uh, we don't need sometimes to know some, some fantastic deeper <clears throat> purpose, but all we need to know is, can I listen carefully for my next step? Mm-hmm. And that, that's where that, the training <clears throat> of just noticing, what should I do right now? Can I tune in and there's this kind of this I'll, I'll say one more thing I could talk a long time about this but there's something that the Quakers call like the still small voice which we can some sometimes get in touch with and it's not just obvious there I know for myself this came more alive in a meditation retreat about 30 years ago I remember it very distinctly because I was at this retreat and I was walking doing walking meditation and I was there were some people near me and you know and I was a young man and there were some people near me and I thought I felt afraid of these people. And I didn't know why I was afraid. You know, it didn't make sense on a rational basis, but I, I was feeling fear and I was just noticing it. And in the context of that retreat, I said, I'm gonna just stop and ask, why am I afraid? And I stopped and my mind was pretty quiet. And I listened. And two things happened. One is I got an answer to the question, which was basically, I think, something about feeling their power. Their power was scary to me at that, at that time. But the second thing was that something got awakened of that ability to listen and ask a deep question of my own being and get what I came to call my no bullshit voice. <laughs> Buddhist technical term. <laughs> so, so thank you for the question. Yeah. Please, did you have one? Well, I guess it was sort of a follow-up on that question. And you touched on it with um, what about second helping. OK, that's a very. Um, yeah, that's advanced um, practice. <laughs> okay, Well, then maybe beginner practice. Um, when one finds one's intention even after listening to that voice isn't so hot. Mm-hmm. So the question was what happened? What should I do maybe when I listen to my voice and I hear like an intention to let's say um, blame someone and attack someone else <laughs> in an inter, interpersonal stuff. Mm-hmm. Interpersonal uh, conflict. Um, so that's where that's where you can remember that three-step process. Uh, mindfulness. I can be mindful of my tendencies and the intentions that are coming through. But then I can ask myself, "What is wise to do?" Right? In other words, I can, uh, because that intention has come through a lot. I don't have to follow it. And so I can, that's that second moment of that three-step process, I can ask what is wise and compassionate for me to do right now in the moment. So I don't have to, just by the fact that I'm noticing, you know, the, as it were, the vote, the internal vote is a hundred to attack and six to not to attack. I can, it's not a democracy. if you know, if you're following. And I can, I can say, the key of course is asking the question. Mm-hmm. Normally we don't ask the question, we just go with the hundred and not with the six. But I can then, if I ask the question, what is wise and compassionate to do? So go with the minority uh, group in that case. The key is asking the question and giving a little bit of space and recognizing that a lot of these just ordinary daily tendencies it's almost like there's a lot of energy to act in the conditioned way. Yeah, uh, Marty, please. It occurs to me that there's another point there where you've looked at. I could go with the six or the ninety-nine. Yeah. And then you see yourself deliberately, with bravado, go with the ninety-nine. Yeah. And then. Uh, there's a choice to either go into a place of judgment and recrimination or to reflect on why you went with the 99 rather than the 6 and uh, use that as an opportunity to maybe try to set up um, some kind of a a new pattern. That's right. Is everyone here okay? This is... This um, fact that uh, we don't just do this one way. The process we can really, uh, it's really about because working with intention is moment to moment. And the fact that uh, this morning I let the 99 get their way, then I notice right now what's happening. Am I blaming myself for that? What's my choice? What's my intention right now? Or, and so what it means is that I can uh, do something which I'm not, I don't think is, was necessarily wise or compassionate, and I can still learn from it even though I followed the 99. Because I can uh, see what am I doing now, and I can reflect, or I can reflect on that. What would help me next time to not go that way? And so it's not that if you follow the 99, it's all over, because it's really moment to moment, and I find a lot of my learning about uh, tendencies or habits or strong uh, conditioned tendencies, um, a lot of it comes with mind... see, I think if there's mindfulness of the 99, that helps. If you can be mindful of what's happening, even if the 99 get their way, that's helpful. So sometimes when I am notice that I'm being taken away by something, I say, you're being taken away by something donald but be mindful especially notice how it feels sometimes when we're taken away for example it may not feel very good you know and if you can tune into that that helps with learning or you can notice how you feel in the evening when you start when i start blaming myself yeah so it's 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 really ongoing and And the process of learning involves a lot. It doesn't always involve being impeccable in the moment. It involves second thoughts, waking up in the middle of the night and meditating, (laughs) and so forth. So maybe last one, please. Well, it's not. It's just sort of an addition. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so uh, it's my, I've learned to recognize um, when things might not quite be, be true. That sometimes there's an inner voice that I don't have to negotiate or argue with, and there's just that. But it's also how does it feel in the body? Yeah. Yeah. And that that is an important part of the process that I'm looking at. Yeah. You know, it's not just a voice. You know. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. It's a great addition. It's uh, that uh, listening to the body plays a really important role in working with intention, and I think on a lot of lot of ways, and uh, it could be a whole longer discussion. But just for example, to a lot of our reactive patterns have particular signatures in our body, so to speak. You know, we may, you know, if we tune into our patterns, we may notice that when I'm Getting in a judging or blaming mood, my body may go into a particular way of being. Might, you know, for me, maybe my hands clench, or my maybe my um, chest might cave in a little bit, and shoulders go a certain way. You can, when you notice, when you study yourself, you can notice that, and it becomes a, partly a wake-up call, because sometimes the body goes there before the mind goes. <laughs> so you can sometimes you can study that, and and. Uh, also, I know, I know when I, some of you know, I work a lot with this theme of uh, judgment, self-judgment, judgment of others, and I, we do, I do work a lot with the body in that way, and that people do go into characteristic, I mean, well, it's, it's about the nervous system, it's about the whole system. What's also very interesting is that you can use the body to go to a new pattern. You know, if you find yourself contracting with certain tendencies, you can go to a more open way of the body being, and that will counter the mind tendencies. You know so so that's another addition to the whole dialogue that to sometimes if you want to strengthen your best intentions, it's good to have good posture. <laughs> that can sound humorous, but there's actually interesting truths to that. You know that, uh, and I, I said that to be a little bit humorous, but but, uh, or said it that way, but it's like the the state of the body makes a huge difference and we can work with that uh, constructively. Maybe I should, we should have that as a theme, one of the, one of these sessions because it's been a big issue, yeah. A big part of this for me and, and other people i work with is having the witness. <coughs> if the witness is, if you have a strong witness, you can watch without judgment because a lot of times people think the inner, it's the inner voice and it's, it's the judge. Yeah. Yeah. But the, but the witness can stay neutral and, 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 and observe it all for you to see. Yeah. It. And then, it can show, then you can make your decision of your intention out of that rather than out of the guy judging and saying you should be a good person or yeah. you should be a better person. Yeah. Wonderfully said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, uh, it's that space of the witness, the mindfulness that gives us a little bit of freedom from the conditioned tendencies. So this is Rich, and we could go on for another half hour, but I'll, I'll um, just for, to respect the time, let's just sit quietly for about a minute. And I'll invite us to reflect on what you may have found helpful on those three themes of the importance of intentions in both our practice and our, our actions in the world. The importance of intentions. Then, secondly, working with uh, deeper intentions or aspirations, and then thirdly, working with um, intentions for specific activities for just the all the activities of our day. So reflect on, on what may have been helpful, and if you want to set any intentions for yourself, uh, that that would be help, might be helpful also. And so we close with the traditional dedication of merit, which is also a kind of intention practice. It's at the end of a a session, we remember that we cultivate these qualities and are together not just for ourselves, but also for others. And we offer the benefits from our time together out into the world to help with the healing and ultimately the freedom of all beings.